listening to Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, episode 409. My name is Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we continue our exploration of Joss Whedon's HBO Max series, The Nevers. And speaking of never, um, I'm hoping to never see a cicada in my yard, but uh, have you seen any yet? (laughs) No, and 17 years ago, we were lousy with them, man. They're all over the place. Um, a lot of my neighbors have started seeing them. Uh, I love, actually, this is appropriate for this show. Uh, uh, one of my, a friend of ours who we, uh, coach, uh, my daughter's girls cross team with, uh, said she's watching them crawl out of the grounds like little zombies. Oh, wow. I thought that was hilarious. I mean, a little, actually probably a little terrifying, but very funny as well. Yeah. See, I don't really remember very many from uh, s- 17 years ago uh, so well, you're in a fairly new neighborhood though too so yeah i think isn't that like a thing like if you're in a new neighborhood they probably dug them up and oh well i hope you're right good point oh all right yeah I'm, I'm i've a... heard that i don't know if that's actually a thing okay but, yeah well, well it, it sounds good i like it yeah so but i mean i back in the day i mean we def uh, you know it's, we had just moved into this house and, um, and, you know, so Joey was doing, cause of the, you know, we actually, we only had two kids at the time, but the boys were little. And so she did like the, a little, uh, cement thing to put in the garden. And for father's day, they gave me, and they put like little cicada shells in it. So that's how I always remember, uh, exactly when the cicadas came out. Well, of course it's every 17 years. So you just have to do the math a little bit, but still, yeah. All right, cool. Well, listen, uh, we got a lot to talk about, so we should probably yeah, we do. get moving. Uh, we do want to thank all our patrons, and if you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, you can go to the website, scifitvrewatch.podbean.com, and there's a link over to the right. If you want to contact us with some feedback, questions, whatever, scifitvrewatch at gmail.com. So what I'm watching... I did finish Alice in Borderland and okay. the fact that I still don't know what the hell is going on is definitely a plus yeah. in my book. Yeah, I, I thought so too. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about it, you know, when, when we're not, you know, in the middle of a podcast, but I, I like it. I, I, you know, I, I definitely got to go back and watch it again for sure. It's one of those that I, I feel like there have to be clues that have been littered through the early episodes that are going to maybe you know, give me some insight into what actually happens there at the end. Don't know when we're going to get season two. I, I can't imagine we're not going to get a season two. I got to believe it was pretty popular, but I guess we'll see. I think so. It was. It was like a up there i know well i guess it's just netflix netflix you just know me so well that uh you know, it just kept pushing it for weeks you know i couldn't get away from it until i finally broke down and watched it so all right well, what are you watching um really nothing new I, I did finish uh shadow and bone i don't think i had the when we talked last and i really liked uh shadow and bone i thought the ending was was pretty cool and uh you know obviously sets up for a lot of stuff in the future i know there's quite a few of those books and uh, that their fan base is is pretty rabid so uh, i'm looking forward to hopefully more seasons of 
of that show. Um, I also mentioned The Bad Batch last week, I think. So I actually went back. So the, I guess the new, air quotes, new uh, show that I watched is I went back and rewatched episodes uh, one through four of season seven of The Clone Wars, which are the episodes that The Bad Batch appear in because it had I had binged The Clone Wars hard and like, well, I remembered some aspects of of what the the bad who the bad batch were and what they happened while they were in it. Um, I, I wanted to refresh her on that. So, and yeah, you know, now I'm thinking I might just go back and start the Clone Wars all over again. That just that show is so good, animation is so awesome. Yeah, so that's it for me. Cool. All right, sounds good. Yeah, I am going to get to Shadow and Bone for sure. That that is high on my list. Is uh, probably. Uh, maybe this week now that I'm finished with uh, Alice in Borderland. So yeah, that's definitely a show. You know, I think I'd mentioned before, like you get past all the WTF is going on of the, like the first episode because you know, they're throwing you in this world and they use geography and terms that with which I'm unfamiliar. Once I figured that out, which has happens pretty soon, then we're good to go. And it's the same thing kind of with The Witcher, except The Witcher managed to may stay confusing uh, throughout much of its run. But Shadow and Bone pretty much, they hit you a little at first, a little shocking at first because they, they're talking about things. They expect you to kind of, it seems like they expect you to know what they're talking about already. But um, once it you, once you get the geography set in my in my head, we were all good. All right, well, let's talk some The Nevers, episode two of season one, titled Exposure. And I don't know about you, we haven't really said how far either of us have watched because we're several weeks behind. And the finale apparently just aired this past Sunday, so I've been careful not to read anything. I don't even want to see a damn headline, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, This episode was written by Jane Espenson, who wrote 20 or more episodes of Buffy, she also wrote an episode titled Shindig from a little show you might know called Firefly. I, I, I do know the Jane episode. Yeah. Espenson wrote for Firefly. I just tripped over her name there totally. Sorry about that, Jane. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's, a, she's a goddess. Man. Yeah, absolutely. She's, 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 she's in the pantheon. Yep. Battlestar Galactica, Caprica, Once Upon a Time. Yes, even yes, wrote an, yeah. Well, even, even wrote an episode of Game of Thrones. Did she? Now that I did not know. And I forget which one. I wrote it down and I don't have it on this piece of paper. But uh, yeah. this she's one, absolutely brilliant, yes, though. I mean, no. and the, the writing that she's done in the Nevers uh, shows that. That's so much. You know, sometimes you watch other shows just like, and you see something that someone who's just really, really good like that. It's like watching the NBA versus college basketball, yeah, or something. Yeah. Sometimes it's like watching the NBA versus rec basketball. Yep. Well, this one was directed by Joss Whedon, aired April 18th, 2021. Let's start with some of the major plot developments that we get in this episode. I could call them reveals because they are reveals, but certainly one of the biggest is with Lavinia Bidwell, who appears to be playing both sides. And We should have seen this come. I mean, I know like it's just the actress, but I mean... You know, I mean, they 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 pulled just like they did. She she's just like with Dollhouse, right? Where she's not one hundred percent bad, not one hundred percent good. She's a character who just lives. Seems like she's going to live in that gray area. Though, of course, she's tilting bad with this episode. Well, or 
is she play, is she tilting purple, not gray? Because what I didn't notice until the third viewing, you remember that scene where the shop girl who discovers she's touched, or I guess she already knew she was touched. But, yeah, she but definitely her, already knew. Right, when her boss uh, you know, calls her out. And the rest of the world. I, exactly. Yeah. And you remember she gets trapped there at the end and she goes in the door with that woman who, you know, is pretending to be welcoming. And there are two guys that kind of usher her towards that door and they've got these purple armbands on. I don't know if you noticed that. Or oh, not. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, then what I noticed, if you remember the scene when Lavinia calls Augie in to ream him out for spending one-on-one time with penance... In the background, against the wall, I see a big purple ribbon. Really? That I did not catch. And again, given what we see at the end of the episode, that that she is, in fact, the boss, uh, again, leads us to believe that she's playing both sides. But that's not the big conundrum. What the hell is that blue glowing object? Is it an object or is it an opening? I... No clue. I have no idea what it is. It's a big glowy thing. I mean, I want it to be a portal to somewhere. I want it to be a Teletubby. <laughs> now, you may be aging uh, yourself somewhat. With, I, uh, I, I, that's actually way after my time. But no, I just, I, I just mean that. that yeah, <laughs> never mind. All right. we don't it's just, if anything shows up, still very immature. <laughs> but anyway so so we get a lot of lavinia in this episode maybe even more important is the revelation that amalia and malady have a history right and not only do they have a history it appears they were best friends because i don't think it is just a delusion of malady that they were besties you see the reaction no, on, yeah, on Amalia, yeah, or Molly, Sorry. right? Molly, right? That's what she calls her, Molly and Sarah, right? So, uh, you know, how much of Malady's actions? I mean, we've talked about what's her end game. What is she actually after? I mean, is she on a mission from God, the way she seems to pretend, or is it to bring down Molly for? abandoning her or at least that's the way she see, seems to uh, see it and again we, we get some reveal into uh, amalia's history we talked about her her husband again unless i misread something she's letting us know that her husband physically abused her unless i missed it um I, I, it was it seemed to be strongly suggested i don't think she confirmed like because it's when she's with Freddie uh, Mundy, Detective Mundy, and he, he kind of you know, says something. I can't remember exactly what he said, but you know that is suggestive that her husband, uh, you know, physically abused her, and she just kind of, I don't, she doesn't answer it. She just kind of, you know, it's like she she neither confirms nor denies. I guess, I, I guess as Fred points out later. Her husband was a butcher. You think, well, okay, that that you know they, they stereotypically, you know, present butchers in in TV and everything as being kind of brutal guys. So maybe it, it is true. So, okay. and he's trying to get at her propensity for violence, and, and 
you know, come up with some reason how this delicate woman could be such a fighter. And, and of course, that's well, that's a, a theme that that continues to run throughout the the nevers the the way yeah and honestly if we we look it's very difficult to believe that amalia could have been abused by anyone right Uh, i I mean i guess that's you know i mean there's a lot of factors that go into abuse i don't mean to suggest that just because she's a good fighter meant that someone couldn't get their hooks into her or anything but again she seems like someone who doesn't take you know crap from anybody but that's now Um, that's this is three years after we see her apparently try to commit suicide by jumping in the river and she's now had three years to i i I guess rebuild her life get jacked well (laughs) you and you could be absolutely right but like Rocky, right? Like, and, and, know, and the lifting li- logs and shit. You know? <laughs> the line I was looking for was Lord Masson referring to the feminine plague, which is, I guess, code for the fact that uh, women are starting to demand their rights, and the men are frightened as hell. So, um, the other thing is Mary's song, which obviously comes out in episode one, and and uh, you know, I wrote in my notes, will her song become important? Which is sort of a rhetorical question. We know it will. It's just a sure. question of how, you know. Mm-hmm. And well, we know Pence's plan, right, is to kind of you know find a way for her to draw other touched in with her song. Right, which then begs the logistical question, where are they going to put them all? Are they going to have to yeah. expand, get a, you know, of course they could move into Lavinia's house. Dude, what a, what a mansion yeah. that is. Right. Um, but the other thing with, with Mary's song, and, and, I, and I love how Amalia, and we'll talk about her relationship with Frank Mundy develops in this episode, but, but when she basically gets out of him that he's more concerned with finding Mary alive than bringing in Malady. And that now that she knows that she understands the two of them can work together. And, and, and I just, I right. love how she did that. That, that was just, that was brilliant. Yeah. Well, what she doesn't ask if he wants to work with her, I, apparently he's good with it, but it's just like, you know, he could say, well, that's great that you trust me, but unfortunately, you know, but and, and I'd called him Fred before, and I meant Frank Bundy, yeah. obviously, yeah. But but yeah, I, I love those scenes where they're working together, kind of breaking it down, working, you know, like actual partners and you know, cop partners and everything. It was cool. Yeah, and there are a lot of those scenes in this episode where, where two characters are are you know involved in either a physical exchange, but more often than not, a, 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 an exchange of dialogue. We talked last time whether or not Augie knows that he's touched and now for sure he knows he's touched he, he he mentions it in his conversation with penance but as he tells her he he did have a feeling and again you are much more of a game of thrones scholar than i am uh-huh. but i can't help but think a little bit about brandon stark as we sure. look at augie's turn in, in you know in this uh, story yeah, and, and again, I mean, I, I mean, it's Jane Epstein. I don't know if she's gonna, you know, hack off someone else, but uh, you know, but just you have to wonder: it was was that was that a factor that you know? Because you're right; it is his his power is 
very similar to that of, of what Brandon can do by entering into uh, into crows or, or well for Brandon it's ravens right. uh, for Augie it's crows yeah well you know we get that story with the shop girl who discovers that she's touched well she doesn't as we said she she already knew she was touched it, it's not really clear how she has been able to control her turn all that ways because once I think by wearing the gloves. Oh, is that okay? I, I didn't. Yeah, know. because you see, she when she touches the hat, she looks and sees there's a little hole in her glove. Oh, where her skin made contact with the hat. Okay, and and then that's so. I think just probably wearing gloves without a hole in. But unfortunately, she you know has a hole in. Her well, glove you know and, what, and and that makes sense when you think about how worn her gloves are. She's probably wearing them outside of work to accomplish the same thing and uh, in other words not make objects float but right well like because that's difficult <laughs> what do you do when everything you touch with your skin ends up floating you know like to eat to you know you know, wipe your butt you know to to you know get a drink of water i mean all those things require the thing in front of you not floating away right right now, yeah, I, I started thinking, all right, what's the whole purpose of her little story arc? And, and certainly one is that it, it shows us there are multiple groups that are after the touched for varying reasons. But we see she's restrained by that mad doctor who we now have a name, Dr. Haig, who's about to cut open her skull when that guy tells him that the boss is coming, so he has to stop. And, you know, that guy that comes in and tells him, again, on the third viewing, I'm starting to wonder whether or not that guy is some sort of a robot or automaton or, and now I can't even remember what Dr. Haig says to him, but it's almost like the things that he says, all I can tell you is what I was told. And so I don't know. We'll we'll see. I guess that's not that important, but. But the whole idea—I about- mean, that, that's a, that, those are things. Though it's not like you're just making that up. And we've seen an uh, automaton, you know, driving a, a chariot. So if they can build something that 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 not a chariot, uh, a coach, you know. So if they can build something that drives a coach, you know, maybe you could build a you know butler or whatever. Yeah, true. And and, and again, as she is escaping. You know, the uh, shop and trying to make her way to the orphanage again we get another sense about how the prejudice against the touch you know is just increasing and even with her there's some prejudice uh sent her way simply because of her immigrant status mm-hmm. uh, whether legal or not assume it's legal at this point there's no indication that that it's otherwise but there's a lot there, which then takes us to the scene, which is actually at the end of the episode, when the boss turns out to be Lavinia Bidlow. Haig shows her that big blue glowing thing that we were talking about a few minutes ago. But her reaction is that this is war. War against whom? The, the drivers of that spaceship that we talked about last week? And what are they digging down there? I mean, it almost looks like some sort of a a subway or an underground, but, uh, you know, were they digging yeah. to uncover whatever that thing is? I don't know. Yeah. So, 
All right. <laughs> There's just so much I just don't, you know, like, like right now it's just like, ah, I'm just going along for the ride. Well, you know, just the 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 writing's good. The the you know dialogue's clever. The actors are are, are doing a great job. Um, I really have no clue what's. Well, I should say no clue, but you know the, the larger things that are, are that are at play here are just at this point are are very murky. Right. To me. And the great thing, as well as the you know horrible thing is that we've only got four episodes to go so we feel like we're going to get some answers but maybe we're not and more right. than likely well it's just a half the half season yeah I mean, but they haven't even started filming the second right half. true true yeah right so well let's talk a little bit about the relationship with frank monday and amalia true and how they joined forces you know we talked a little bit about it that in the opening discussion we first see frank as his officers are raiding the orphanage, looking for evidence of criminal behavior. And, you know, as Amalia says to him, and and maybe even one of the other girls, what makes you think we'd be hiding Malady in the girl's underwear drawer? I I mean, it's just so absurd. It's almost as if Frank Mundy just wants to send a message that, I'm in charge, you're not, I'm the man, you're not, I'm in power, you're not. So you, oh, yeah. and- Absolutely, it's complete abuse of, of, of power here. Like, exactly, just like if you look at it, uh, Frankie, he doesn't like being called yes, Frankie, I- so I guess it's a little disrespectful. <laughs> I don't think he can But, you know, if, if you look at it, you know, yeah, right, plus you're a fictional character, so it's all good. Um, you know, as as I believe uh, Penance points out, well, you know, she, she was the one fighting her. Remember that? Remember how she was trying to stop her? Uh, but I guess to Frankie, it's just he saw her go after Maldi, and then they were both gone. So, like, did she run? I get the point. I guess, we, you know, now I think Penance didn't say that. But maybe it's Amalia who said it. I, I get, but, you know, the point is, for, from his point of view, uh, she ran after malady and then they disappeared so for all he knows that they are in cahoots in some way yeah well you know you mentioned lavinia bidwell as being one of those characters that you know shades of gray apply and we're not sure yet whether she's good or bad and lord swan is seems to be a similar character he's apparently the one that turned amalia true in which all precipitated this raid and and granted we could argue that mundy would have found another excuse to raid it if if swan hadn't told his story about what he saw which on the surface is true on the other hand well why didn't you get in there and help that's not my job he he tells uh mundy but you know, in in terms of who authorized the raid, you know, whether it's Masson, who, you know, certainly looms large in, in the fight against the touched. But yeah, and, and Hugo Swan is just such a gross representation of of privilege. Again, he he has the the sob story. Oh, my dad hit me when I was a kid. And, you know, again, that's that's bad. But you know he's also the the child of privilege, and so he can 
mouth off to Lord Masson. And at first, it's like, oh, well, he's, you know, that's kind of he's kind of cool, right? And then you realize, oh no, he's just he's super rich, so he doesn't care. He can do whatever he knows. He can do whatever he wants. He knows he can say whatever he wants. He can disrespect whoever he wants. These guys aren't going to do anything because he's a rich white guy, you know. Yeah, and, and James, um, so that that tar- I'm sorry, no, go I'm ahead. just saying that the, the, the kind of so he's not really like a rebel or a hero. He's just a guy who's used to getting his way and people doing whatever he tells them to do or people dealing with taking any, any crap from him because of how much money he has or who his dad is. Right. And I was just going to say, James Norton is brilliant playing. He's amazing. Playing this character who we really see two shades of him because, you know, we see the shade when he's in his milieu at his club and then, of course, we see the shade when he's in the gentleman's club wearing his tux and drinking his, his brandy or whiskey or whatever it is they're drinking there. And, and while they're not polar opposites, enough, there's enough difference there that it's almost as if we see two sides of this, this same character. So I, I really love him. But Desiree is one. Well, if I could just say one more thing, because you know, yeah. well, I think the costuming really points it out, because as you said, the one, he has the very formal dress on, and the other, he's like wearing lipstick and has like a this flowing robe on and everything. Right. Now, you, you mentioned costume, and I meant to bring this up last week, and it's still pertinent this week. I don't know how important it actually is, and I talked about it with my wife, who seems to agree with me. We know we're in 1899, but there's something about the women's clothing, particularly Penance and Amalia, that it's really subtle. It's almost as if the wardrobe designers have updated it a little bit. So whether it's like this this vest that one of them is wearing that I'm thinking, I don't remember ever seeing a woman from this era wearing clothing like that uh, sleeves rolled up the way you often see either or both of them. Uh, yeah. I just wonder if anybody else noticed that really subtle, but a lot of the, the clothing, the two of them wear just seems not quite spot on, but deliberately done that way. Not, yeah, not, not as if the wardrobe designer made a mistake, not, not at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I did notice that their dresses like involved two pieces. Like, there's a a separate top from the bottom. And again, I don't know if if that is like accurate historically speaking, or if that's to demonstrate their you know more modern women and everything. But yeah, I totally noticed that. Yeah, just and it's just this slightly different universe that has these people called the touched. But anyway, um, True. Desiree is this character. I still not exactly sure where she came from i mean she shows up there with her son you know she says she's a prostitute you know she she eventually reveals what her turn is amalia basically lets her know i I know somebody sent you who is it but we never really learn that anybody sent her again unless i missed it well, no. It, well, her Desiree, and it appears that this story is solid, is that she's scared. You know, people reveal their innermost selves to her, right? That's her, her like her power. Um, and through that, she found out the guy that was 
one of her clients is going to kill her. So she is, goes there for, for safety. Okay. And, you know, but Amalia obviously and correctly is suspicious of that at first. Um, because, well, I mean, just look at the time that, you know, she's, there's, there's a lot going on. Also, this lady just comes off the street. She wants to, you know, obviously she's suspicious, but she gives Desiree a chance to to prove herself, and, and she definitely does. You can, so you can see that uh, Amalia pretty quickly is going to trust Desiree. Well, yeah, and she's got an immediate task for her already, which is to get at the truth of Frank Monday. And, and again, this is brilliantly done the way she gets Frank to start talking about his relationship with Mary. And we learned that Mary left him at the altar. And as he says, well, I don't blame her. I wouldn't marry me either. But um, and, and then as soon as he realizes what has happened, you know, I mean, he's certainly angry at himself, probably a little bit embarrassed, but um, you know, it, 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 well, he does pull a gun out, so that, <laughs> there is that would that. indicate a level of hostility in his attitude towards what happened. Right, but it does lead into Amalia trusting him a little bit more and revealing that Mary's turn is her song, which is a song of hope. And you know, we, we mentioned earlier what's going to happen with her song. You know, it, it it may in fact just turn out to be this anthem. In in addition to, as you point out, a rallying call for other touched individuals, mainly women, to to come to the orphanage for for safety. We also talked though about whether or not she could control her ripplings, and she kind of verifies here that she can't. And I again, I forget how he awkwardly asks her whether she can change the future so to speak if you if you see yourself here can you go there and she says nope can't and yeah. we pretty much speculated that so so but, so but again i point to well, you know in the first episode where she saw um malady jumping up over the balcony or jumping up to the balcony and that didn't happen true Right. So yeah. are we going to get an explanation for that? That's yeah. You mentioned that at the time. Yeah. I don't know, but yeah, but, but you're right again. Cause she says she can't stop it, but I'm like, well, but, and maybe, maybe I don't know if I just miss saw something or misinterpreted something, but I'm pretty sure that, that that's what happened. So I don't know. We'll just kind of put a pin in that for later. I hate when people say that yeah, actually, yeah. we will, we'll mention that at a different time <laughs> and, and we'll drill down in that later. That's another thing yeah. I hate to, We'll piggyback say. on that. Yeah. Like um, so, so she's now working with Frank, and, and she's looking at his murder board at, at the precinct, and, and she sees that one photograph, which we, of course, know is the factory or whatever it is, warehouse, where Malady is holding Mary and Penance, but... Amal well, just Mary at the time. Oh, right, right. But Amalia's already had the flash where she sees herself punching Mallory. So she knows she's going to end up there. And, and I love, she takes the photo, gives it to, uh, oh crap. I forgot her name already. Desiree. Desiree. And, and says, Frank's going to come looking for me in about 10 minutes. Give him this picture. And that's all she says. Now in retrospect, we understand 
what she was doing here because she goes to the place where where we know Mary's being held and, and confronts Malady, and you know they have a fight and and I love the the short, tight, well executed fight scenes that we've seen so far in the Nevers. I I hate as I've said many times these long protracted fight scenes mm-hmm. that go on for several minutes. Just we're looking at you, Arrow. Yeah, just get in, get out, and. and, and but but the question I have is, why does Amalia stop punching her? I mean, she's got her down. And again, we've talked about this. We always refer back to uh, Prince Oberon in Game of Thrones. Why does she stop punching her? Finish her. Well, well yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and, and even Malady says, would you like to beat me some more? Well, but but I, I think that's exactly it. Like whatever, because Mally gets up, she's got the orange eyes again, which happened the last time Amalia was, you know, slapping her around. So you, you start to get the feeling that maybe she is can't be beat down, you know? Right, and I guess that's what the deal with the glasses that Penance invents for Amalia. I guess that's what they're supposed to do, which is avoid the glowy eyes. Because as they, as they say, they still don't understand Malady's power. I mean, you know, you've speculated that, it, you know, some sort of enhanced physical abilities, and I certainly agree with you based on what we've seen. But, you know, then that, that revelation where the two know each other from the past, yeah, which begs the question, well, of course, I was going to say it begs the question why didn't Amalia figure this out earlier? Well, I guess she hasn't actually seen, you know, it's not as if they've had photographs of Malady, at least that I know of. Well, well, and she looks pretty different. I will say that (laughs) probably from when Amalia knew her. Right. Well, I mean, we see her going into the, um, you know, getting loaded into the, the, the van for wherever she's going in Bedlam, maybe, or, you know, she's going to the psychiatric, whatever they would call it, the hospital. And, of course, now she has, like, the, kind of, like, the black paint over the top of her face, which, you know, again, arrow makes it impossible to identify the person, you know. So, yeah, I, I guess that explains why only here where they're kind of, like, kind of face-to-face and not punching each other does she have the chance to, you know, finally understand who, who, who this is. And she calls on the ultimate psychopath choice, the Sophie's choice, shoot one, you get to keep the other. And, of course, and I do like the fact that she throws that option in, shoot me. And I guess the implication is they'll both die. But, you know, given what we uh, see from Bonfire Annie, we're not quite so sure that's actually how things would have transpired. But sure. Regardless, she shoots herself, and Malady goes in to go after her for the kill, and Bonfire Annie's not having any of it, and saves Amalia True, which is, again, a huge turning point in this story. So, you know, how Bonfire Annie's going to move, uh, go moving forward, we don't know, but get to see Horatio again. Always good to see him. And, and again, you nearly died, you idiot. It's like, well, I, I deliberately missed the organ. Uh, no, you didn't. And he goes, no, you didn't. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, 
Oh, and, and then as Pennant says, there's loads I'll need explained, but let's just be alive for a while. And and yeah. and we talked last time about the the relationship with these two. It's just it's just the the highlight of the show so far. I mean, there's a lot yeah. to love about this show, but their relationship is, is certainly high on the list. Absolutely. I don't think it's going to, you know, like we talked about the, the Roman Peter relationship in Hemlock Grove and how that's kind of central, but there's too much weirdness in this one. This is just a, well, I guess it's penance herself. It's just such a, a pure soul, you know, I don't necessarily think we can say that about Amalia, but for penance for sure, she just is such a genuine person all around, you know, like, uh, that uh, you know, we we when she's concerned, we're concerned. You know, when when she's sad, I'm sad. You know, kind of like that. Right. And, and Fred Wayne did not say Hemlock Grove. You, you misheard that. So, um, yeah. All right. And Dave didn't just say it again. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of relationships, Augie and Penance at that party, it, it, it just ends up positively heartbreaking. You know, there, there's something about Augie. We know he's basically good right but how do you do something so cruel so yeah i mean first of all the girls are brought there as a little sideshow and on the one hand you understand lavinia's point that we need to show people show the average person albeit the average rich person yeah that the touched are the average person who matters. Yes, that that they're nothing to be afraid of. So on the one hand, we get that wearing the blue ribbon. You know, again, it, identification it, is the first step to genocide. Yeah, friend. well, there you go, and and, and you yeah. can see it. It's off putting to every one of them. Uh, yeah, because uh, it is. It's it, you're identifying them. Right, you're setting them apart. You put a you know, a, a yellow star on or a pink triangle. It's the same thing, right? Right. And, and through all of this negative energy that, that comes out of this scene, I, I did like the little pre-scene where Amalia and Penance are holding their little fantasy draft for which girls are going to go. All right, well, mm-hmm. I'll, I'm going to take her. Okay, but then I get her. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. that was pretty funny. Um, that was funny, yeah. But... Her line, Lavinia, that is amused, not alarm, and you know, okay, whatever. But it's that scene with Augie and Penance. He's clearly attracted to her, understandably. Well, and, yeah, and, sure. And, and, <laughs> and the two of them fumbling, and she basically, you know, those paintings you wanted to show me, and just to to be alone to talk. And the fact that it's her that has to kind of prompt him to, to take action, again, I think speaks into that, that larger arc that we've been talking about, this men versus women, that the men are, are terrified that their territory is, is being taken away by women. But they talk about you know, the fact that he's touched and, and you know, they go through all that. And it's just it's a wonderful scene. Because we know that she sees herself as, on the one hand, a, a, as the other. And while she's right. certainly comfortable with who she is, and you know, I don't think doubts her you know, self-worth at all, she understands that not everybody sees her that way. So to see her with somebody 
And granted, she knows he's touched as well. We just haven't seen her in this kind of a situation and that it, for a moment, she's not you know, this leader of this, this group of people that are being you know, hounded and harassed and, and you know, she's not an inventor anymore. She's just a young woman with a young man that you know she likes he clearly likes her and right which makes you know what he does to her that much like just awful yeah and and the fact that he allows his sister to control him that way i mean swan mentions to him you know that we're forever second sons you know my older brother's dead yours happens to be a woman yeah and he's dead on with that though right well well, he is but it it doesn't even matter i i guess what's just so difficult to accept is mostly the way he treats her and why he does it you know because his sister essentially tells him to I mean, her. But you know what? It's it's not just that. It's also the weight of social expectation and class, and you know, and, and prejudice. Um, she says, you know, you know, we can't have a girl who is touched and Irish bear the Bidlow name. So it's not just she's touched. Oh, that's bad enough. But Irish. Oh, well, no, no, that's completely unacceptable. You know. So you know, where at Lavinia we see up until this point kind of as being this heroic patron supporter of the touched and other oppressed peoples. We see she's just a a run-of-the-mill aristocratic privileged snob. Right. And and And, and, and that that society that that built her and her brother into which they were raised and who the, the expectations that they understood their entire life you know, well, dictates that. And, and, you know, and he's a nice guy, but obviously now he's not someone who's willing to go against the, the weight of, of society and conventionality, even for a girl who is drop-dead gorgeous, awesome, kind, and just an amazing all-around person. Yeah, and, and so what do we make of that scene then as she's driving away alone and he takes the form of a crow and follows her. I mean, yeah, he'll probably rethink it. Yeah, when when he when he has a chance to really think it through, he'll he'll probably end up saying "f you" to his sister. I imagine. Well, I would hope so. I'm I'm not sure how I want Penance to respond to his apology or you know whatever comes out of his his mouth. But but even before that, what I, I love- always say, man, you oh. go big, you can't be wrong. Well, go big or go home, you'll be okay. You you know the woman that's a little bit older that seems to be the house mother lucy lucy i loved how she it's like she sees all knows all she sees exactly what's just happened and she goes up you know why don't we go it's time to go just because she knows you you take the car i'll get a ride home uh don't worry about us she knows exactly what she needs she knows exactly what to say and what not to say and just uh, just what a heartbreaking scene. But but on the other hand, here's somebody that, that really does love you and, you know, steps in and, and does this. So just wonderful yeah. scene. 
Um, well, I mean, guys are, are shit, right? I'm sorry. I didn't well, say, it was bad language. But I mean, guys are can be terrible, right? You know, what we see here and the heartbreak she goes through, unfortunately, she's, you know, not the first nor the last, not even woman, but, you know, person to, to go through something where she thinks, you know, you know, everyone, I think probably everyone has one point there. They think they're into someone that someone's into them. They find out that it's not the case necessarily. And that, that hurts. That sucks. Well, the, the last thing I wanted to, well, not the last thing, but one of the last things, you know, the, Amalia's confrontation of Malady. And, you know, we talked a, a few minutes ago about Bonfire Annie and, and what's she going to do now. And, and I think she kind of reveals herself when she tells Malady, I don't mind crazy, boss. I can't work with stupid. And right. it's almost as if she's buying her time trying to figure out which side to be on, but not necessarily the way we perceive Lavinia to perhaps be playing both sides. I think I think in Bonfire Annie because she is touched that you know I mean you want to be on the winning side but but I think she reveals her true self when she saves Amalia from from Malady at this point and then of sure. course the the importance of the picture uh, becomes clear when Frank you know realizes what oh I got to take my men to that factory or whatever it is. And that, of course, sends Malady on, on the run. But I, I guess we get a little bit of insight into Malady. It's just that I don't know if it makes any sense, at, at least to me. And, you know, she's talking to Mary about Mary being relegated to the course. You're, you know, you're old now and, you know, you being supplanted by these younger women. And then she starts talking about uh, God made me see a crown. And she talks about a crown of thorns and... Um, she, Malady, like, so, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, 90% of what Malady says is incomprehensible. You know, it's like, I, I know the words you're saying. I recognize those words. They're English for sure. It's just the order you're putting the words in is not clicking for me, you know. Um, but, you, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, what she's saying has some relevance we just don't know it yet it's got it because this is the kind of the second time in a row she's just been spouting out crazy stuff but but when she's with amalia she's lucid well yeah and and, and the whole idea about how god could choose someone like mary and give her the gift of song when i'm in so much pain i don't want what i want he means for this to hurt and then she seems to reveal, like like you said, she, we know it makes sense. We just don't know what sense it makes yet. Right. Because she seems to imply that she sees God's work in the economic inequities in society. And clearly, she doesn't verbalize it very clearly. But, you know, and I think it's Amalia that says, no, she really does have a a firm belief in God. She really truly is religious. It's just that she's also is insane to. Yeah. Powerful. I I, I, I'm not sure what she, she certainly has mental disturbances. Yes. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, uh, you know, at the risk of, of saying something that is inappropriate. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, she's just, she's, she is legit. Like, 
suffering from some kind of 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 mental d- disease with, without question uh, we guess or she's the like the sane one but just no one else can is with her you know like people don't understand what she's saying but but what she's saying makes perfect sense right right you know one, one of the things about masson and we don't see a lot of him but i i find it fascinating the way he manipulates the media because he is the, you know the consummate man behind the scenes he's happy because maladies turn public opinion against the touched and he wants no mention of amalia true in the press because that would give her credit and, and that's a, a, absolutely what he does not want to have happen and he mentions the feminine plague and no positive attention for the touched and, and then, of course, we get that scene where he's upset with uh, Hugo because he's going to turn the ferryman's club into an actual business. And he's employing some women who are touched. And, and even Hugo, I mean, as crass as it is, you know, we I mean, I was going to say we don't know what to make of it, but I think we know exactly what to make of it. The touched are the future, a gold mine. So. Yeah. He's planning to use them. And, and He is using them. Right. He is using them. And, and in the first episode, we, we had that little scene where the use of the word employee versus the employed is, right. is used. I guess Hugo would argue, hey, I'm employing these people. I'm giving them a job. Right. Well, That's absolutely his argument, right? right? He says that, right? right. Like, right. I'm paying them. Right. No. They're, not, they're not slaves. They're, they're getting paid. But, you know, obviously. Um, you are taking advantage you know, of them. I- exactly. So, All right. Uh, anything else before we get to the uh, feedback? Well, the, uh, you know, the guy, it sucks that the, the bad pseudo dr mengala guy is an american yeah <laughs> that kind of sucks but um that oh well um i like how uh, uh penance is like on a little elliptical machine in the beginning and she's reading yeah. right yeah yeah <laughs> so that was that there's little touches like that that i really uh like about this show so yeah i think that's that might be it okay all right well let's get into some of the listener feedback and the first one that I want to read came via email, and it's from Rainbird, who says, I've been following you since the Continuum days, and I'm glad to hear you taking a deep dive into one of my favorite new shows, The Nevers. However, there's something I'd like to draw your attention to. In your character analysis, you referred to Lavinia Bidlow as wheelchair-bound. This term is derogatory and belittling and denies agency and control to the person you're talking about. A wheelchair is not a prison sentence or an anchor. It's a tool of mobility that people use to lead full, independent, and active lives. The preferred term is wheelchair user. Thanks for thinking a little deeper about this. Language is important. It shapes the way we think and interact with our environment and our community. This especially applies when we're talking about an era when women had to fight for every scrap of self-expression and worth, both physically and intellectually, best rainbird from northwest nowhere and yeah absolutely and and over the years we've we've said we welcome we we want you when and and i'm pretty sure like i said to you wayne earlier i'm pretty sure that was me that's that said that but then i thought it it was me so you know like again it, it 
it's it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, but uh, but a- absolutely. So thank you for bringing that to our attention, and yeah, keep giving us feedback. All right. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we we are, you know, certainly we we want to do the best we can, we and we want to uh, make sure we are being respectful to to all our listeners, one hundred percent. And I know. Uh, we hear that a lot of times from people who clearly don't mean it, but you know, I mean, we heartfelt mean it, and uh, you know, I felt bad when I saw that. Um, I know you didn't send it to to make us feel bad, but to point out something, and I, I thank you for pointing it out. And and you know, it's always great to to learn. See, I'm not saying learn something, but understand where you can do better and be better. So right, and just be more aware. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, we want to look at a couple Facebook posts. So you got one from Alan Thomas. Yes. So Alan says, uh, just joined this group after hearing the episode with Dave and Mike reunited. I first got into them way back with the Extant podcast. Good times. But I wanted to get a shout out to Fred from the Netherlands because I also watch episodes of TV shows months apart. Glad to know I'm not the only anti-binger out there. For me, it's not terribly hard to keep track of where I am because I just use the TV Time app. Wikipedia can be a big help if I need to refresh my memory as to what happened in previous episodes. I do, however, have a complicated system of randomization to choose what to watch at any given time. I give myself a 20% chance of total personal free choice, and then there are some shows that are heavily weighted to come up quite often, others that will, on average, come up once a year or less. For instance... I recently watched and enjoyed the second episode of Travelers, approximately four years after seeing the pilot. It is weighted so lightly, it will most likely be a similar amount of time before it pops up again, although it could come up tomorrow, or not for a decade, or maybe even never. If I really get a craving to see more of it, I could always use a free choice slot on it or increase its weighting, but I'm happy with where it is. All right, so Alan sounds either like a mathematician or a gamer like he's rolling a d20 there to see what it is uh he's gonna watch but yeah that's great. right that's great stuff um well the only thing great about it is he mentions pretty much everyone in this podcast except for me wow. so yeah. alan let's tighten it up there buddy <laughs> uh and then also in the facebook group uh Kristen cakes hirsch who says also shadow and bone was mentioned and that would be cool for y'all to cover especially because it's based on books but has been changed quite a bit from the books. Some changes I like, some I don't, but I like way more than I usually do when they change books for TV or movies. I would have been so much more lost without having read the first book. Even so, there's still things I'm lost about, probably because I haven't read the second book, and they mash the storylines from the first and second book together for the show, which adds a good bit of variety into it to keep your attention rather than just following Alina the whole time, which would probably get old and monotonous, but yeah, they could give it a bit more explanation and exposition. And as I was saying to you, that's a show that is very high on my list to get started with. And I hope to get the first episode in, in by the end of this week. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, She says, I was the same way with umbrella Academy as your wife. I love the first season so much. Second season came out and I was like, eh, I love Ginny in Georgia. I watched the first episode and described it as Gilmore Girls meets Carolina meets Weeds. I think my husband would like it, so I'm holding off on watching anymore until I can wear him down into watching it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I mentioned that in, a couple weeks ago. I just loved it. I was sad to miss the Beforeiner episodes. I tried to listen but was lost, having not seen the show. My eyes are too bad to read subtitles. So happy to listen again. Looking forward to the Nevers. There's so many storylines going on. It'll be nice to hear it being broken down. Watch the first episode, then stop so I can watch along with y'all. I feel like I should sign this. Kristen from New Mexico, like Fred does. Yeah. So Cool. Um, I actually lived in New Mexico for uh, a short time, many, many years ago. My dad was uh, working out there at, at uh, White Sands Missile Range in Alamogordo, which is uh, right next door to Area 51, believe it or not. And I do believe that. We never actually got the the real story about what my dad was doing there. That was he was working for the army at that point it was before uh, nasa actually came into existence and he he went to nasa when it started i guess around 1960ish i don't i don't remember but uh yeah i just remember playing in the sand all the time and hot very hot but like this <laughs> dry heat that we we don't have in right. maryland for sure no we do not um no. But, uh, you know, the one thing, like she mentions Beforeiner and, and not being able to read subtitles. And again, unless it's something that I haven't figured out, you, you know, if it's Netflix, you just go into the audio and you... and you Sure, you just dub that. You d- dub it to English, but it doesn't look as if Can't, no. HBO Max has... How? HBO Max, come on. Jeez. Exactly. Right, right. Oh. Well, it took them about half a year to go into Roku. So, I mean, you know... Uh, I, I, I if sometimes you know I mean yeah good point. don't get me wrong HBO their content is second to none but their platform blows yeah apparently there's some big mega deal that's happening with AT and T and I I don't know not well I'm sure Disney's buying everything so yeah good point so all right well let's hear what Fred's got for us this week and we'll be right back. Hello Dave and Wayne and all listeners to Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for The Nevers, Season 1, Episode 2. Yeah, I fulfilled my purpose as human being. Today is the birthday of my youngest son and he became 18. So I did manage to get two sons into so-called adulthood. It feels a bit like that salmon that swims up the river and done his task and is then allowed to die. The other one is 19 and a half, and they're still living at home. But whatever. Coming back to last week's podcast, where you gave the pilot of the Nevers a straight A, and Wayne always has a little uh, difficulties with giving straight A's for a pilot, because he wants to save the high grades for later episodes, perhaps. And you were talking about other Joss Whedon shows. You were talking about Buffy and Dollhouse, and then you were talking about Firefly, which is very funny for me, because I'm currently, as you know, watching Birds of Prey, second season of Dark Angel, and a rewatch of Firefly. So that was a nice reference. Talking about Birds of Prey, in episode 11, which is called Reunion, you started with this. Anyway, tonight we're here to discuss episode 11 of Birds of Prey and give you our abbreviated takes on Falling Skies, The Almighty Johnsons, The Leftovers, and Defiance. But uh, before we get into that, it's time for Do We Care? Do We Care? And do we care that for the second year in a row... The Emmy board has ignored the work that Tatiana Maslany is doing on BBC America's Orphan Black. 
Absolutely, I care. That is a freaking travesty. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. Ludicrous. But, I mean, we know what Tatiana Maslany has done. So getting back, do we care? Hell yes, we care. And hopefully it won't happen three years in a row, but I don't think either of us will be shocked. Yeah, and I think part of it is just what the the genre universe, if you're not Game of Thrones, that genre shows kind of get hosed, right? They're, they aren't maybe seen as like real shows are as serious as, as your normal dramas, whatever. Yeah. Your comment on Tatiana Maslany not getting an Emmy for Orphan Black is ridiculous, is of course music to my ears. And it changed. The third year in a row, she did get the Emmy. And I really wonder what's your opinion about the recognition at the Emmys for genre shows. What has changed in seven years? Because this recording was from 2014. By the way, I'm very happy you don't follow the concept anymore talking about four shows or five shows because in the days you did Birds of Prey, you were talking about three, four other shows as well and that took about half or two-thirds of the podcast. Almighty Johnson's Fallen Skies. Well, when it is a show you did watch, like in my case Defiance, it's not so bad, it's quite nice, but if you have to listen to, yeah, feedback on two, three other running shows at that moment and you didn't watch them uh, not so good because you just don't know what you're listening to of course you can skip it p.s more funny things happen when you listen to these old podcasts you were talking about the film snowpiercer coming up i mean the movie <laughs> not a series who could have known at that time that there also would be a series okay let's get into the nevers episode two Let's start with a little Freddy snippet. If you see the file that Lord Mason has in the men's club on Lavinia Bidlow, the newspaper clipping says Lavinia Bidlow nominates widowed Baker to run charity home. But if you then read the article, it says Lavinia Bidlow of Bidlow Estates has seen fit to furnish a butcher's widow to run her new charity outfit. Why does the header say a baker's wife and the article content says a butcher's wife? And actually Lord Mason says in the club, she is no fucking baker. So what about this nitpick or on purpose? And I really was amazed by this swearing of Lord Mason. One, a man of his standards using this word at all. And two, that they use this word, the F word, in this time period. I heard it in other series from this time period as well. Is that actually historically accurate? I think you as English teachers should know things like that. <clears throat> I think that could be a nice project for one of your students, Wayne. The history in English and American English of the F word. Although... Possibly you'll end up in problems with your yearly meeting with the parents. The next scene was so well written, the bickering between Lord Mason and Lord Swan. Lord Mason says, you are up early. And then Lord Swan says, I can leave my coffin by day if the smog is thick enough. One of the best lines from the first two episodes. Of course, referring to Bram Stoker's Dracula, a Irish writer, and possibly there are some political backgrounds here that play a role, because in this period there was quite some doing on Scottish, Irish, English setting. 
And also a nice reference to the start of the industrial revolution because of a lot of machines and factories, smog gets really a problem around 1900. Also love the interaction between Amalia True and Detective Mundi. Really very nice. I wonder how their cooperation will be in the next four episodes. If this bickering between them will remain or that they will really going to work together. And I loved also the <laughs> the actress that played Ella Smith, is that, that played Desiree Blodgett. So the whore, really funny and really the interaction with her son and yeah, and her accent, really, really very nice. The whole story with Augustus Bitlow was a bit less for me. Uh, I don't know where that is going. Was less interesting. I will give the episode a straight A as well as the previous one. That will be all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. All right, well, you know, I, again, like Fred, I love the interaction between Amalia and Frank Monday, and yeah, we would love to see more of that. Again, not that anything, we're not shipping them. Uh, of course, Frank is infatuated with Mary, and you know, we'll see if that goes anywhere. But, but yeah, I just love the way they're working together, and and. And they're going to need Frank on their side. So, you know, hopefully we'll see more of that. But what about you? Anything you want to yeah. mention for Fred? Well, I just, um, you know, uh, Fred mentioned how, and like when he mentioned how we used to talk about all those shows at one time, I'm like, God, I, I barely remember that. But I remember we kind of got that because there was a, a podcast at the time. It was like two Canadian sisters. Oh, remember? yes, I do. Absolutely. I, I can't remember the name of it, but I, I liked it. Um, and that, you know, they, they would, you know, they, they, their, their episodes would be like an hour and a half long and they talk about like five or six different shows. And I would end up just kind of fast forwarding through the shows that I, I wasn't watching. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, yeah, that was back, back in the day, man. <laughs> I can remember that. Um, also, you know, Fred kind of throwing down the gauntlet there about the, the F word. And so I did some poking around um not a lot so take it with a grain of salt but uh it appears that the you know because there's obviously a taboo on writing that word in english well in in any language i guess that we don't it, it's difficult to say what its origin is right because no one was writing it down and and anything of course we don't have any you know recordings of anything until the you know the, the 19th 20th century so that's when really we start seeing records of, of the word taking place, which uh, is, is probably more a, a a factor of you know dictionaries and and novels and everything uh, finally using the F word or being able to use the F word, get away with it, and still be published. And he pointed out actually it's funny because I just read Naked and the Dead by Norman Mailer, and every time someone says the F word, they say fug through the whole novel and it's really it's probably time to go back and just change that up because it's so unnatural and so it, it pulls you out of the story a lot so i know i don't think norman mailer is with us anymore well, i don't know um, what the frack's up with that but you know yeah still. right exactly same thing right so but but apparently dorothy parker who is uh you know the the, the famous wit uh when she met norman mailer said oh you're the guy who doesn't know how to spell fuck so yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. But anyway, so it, it actually, 
Fred, kind of comes from your, not your neck of the woods per se, but slightly to the north. It looks like it might have been a Scandinavian word that made its way because there's all, obviously every language has loads of words referring to the act of copulation and um, you know how this word made it to the forefront is is seems to be extremely extremely unclear, but it's here and probably here to stay, and it probably has been here much longer than we think it has been here. Uh, but anyway, that's to go. And and, I, and this has nothing to do with Fred's, but I just saw something as as we were going through this on my notes that I meant to say, and maybe just bring it up later. I just uh, so I'll kind of bring it up now, maybe. We'll talk about it next episode because it probably bears some talking about it. But the point where Amalia is looking on the maps and she says, I'm not from here, right? And, of course, we totally got the impression that she was from London. So what does that – what does she mean? We've got two kind of mysterious things she said. This is not my face, and now I'm not from here. And, you know, they, they kind of throw them in there. But it starts us to wonder – what is she talking about? So I like it. Hey. Fred, thank you for the feedback. And, and again, thank you guys for contributing on Facebook. And, you know, we'll continue to try to read at least one each week or so. Um, you know, send us email, Facebook, or audio the way Fred does. All right, I'm going A minus. Uh, this was a great episode, but that's exactly what I was thinking, my man. Okay, I, I think I'm coming along to your way of thinking that I don't want to grade too high. And I mean, sure. it's a really good episode, but got four more to go, and could be some solid A's out there. More than likely, there probably are. So. Yep. All right. Um, but, but we'll hold on to them now. Okay. We'll keep the A's in our back pocket, and we'll, we'll dole them out a little bit later. Okay. All right, well, we will wrap things up there if that sounds good to you. That sounds good to me. All right, that will do it for this episode of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. Thank you for joining us. Love to hear what you think about The Nevers, anything else going on in your genre world. Encourage you to join the Facebook group if you haven't already. The email is sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. We will be back next week to talk about episode three of the hbo max series the nevers but until then well finally this loathsome charade is over <laughs>